If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. Before I begin my sermon, though, I do want to mention out in the foyer, for those of you who enjoy doing uh, Advent countdown, next Sunday is the first Sunday in Advent, but actually Advent begins December 1st, so if you want to read some scriptures that have to do with the uh, celebration of the coming of Christ at his first Advent, there's a whole bunch of them here, so they're out in the foyer, so grab one and just kind of, you can use it when you do your devotions. Um, and make use of it. So it's kind of a nice way to enjoy the Christmas season as we ought to enjoy it, because it really is about Jesus, like, like every day is. So that's the second announcement, I guess, we'll make today. So Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul you know, wrote to the church in Colossae. I didn't mention it before, but you know this is what's called one of the prison epistles. Paul was in prison when he wrote this. Uh, he was being held in Rome, awaiting to give a defense of his for his life before the emperor the emperor was Nero if you know anything about him he was an exceedingly wicked man uh, but tradition tells us or as Protestants like to say history tells us uh, that the first he that he actually appeared before Caesar twice and the first time Paul appeared none of his accusers bothered to show up the book of Acts ends right before that happened pretty much uh, and so charges were dismissed, and, and Paul was set free. Second time he was arrested, it, wasn't, it had nothing to do with the Jews accusing him. It was, he was considered, well, there was riots and things wherever he went, pretty much. But he was considered a troublemaker. And so he was put on trial. Again, he appealed to Caesar. And the second time he was condemned, and uh, history tells us he was beheaded. And so he lost his life. So he wrote this letter um, during his imprisonment probably his first imprisonment, but um, if you read on, like when you get to 2 Timothy in the New Testament, that was before his second trial, and he makes reference to the first trial in that, uh, and that second time, like I say, he gave up his life for the cause of the gospel, because that's really what the charge was. Um, so he's writing here to them, and it appears that he'd never visited Colossae, actually. He'd been close to it. He was, you know, if he, Ephesus, Laodicea, Miletus, and those areas right around there. Colossae was one of the cities in that region. Uh, but it seems that it was um, not a city that he had personally got the church going from. Uh, he hadn't been there and got it, got it started up. Uh, Epaphras was... A minister there, one of the their, their uh, minister of the word, or actually maybe a deacon, but he was the guy. It seems that he went and preached and gathered it by God's grace, gathered a church together. Okay, that's a little bit of background to this. So, Paul, in writing, we're going to read the first ten verses of chapter two today. Paul says, "For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh." that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words, 
For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray you'd be with us now. Give us understanding in your words. Speak to us, we pray, this day from the Holy Scriptures. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. So Paul writes to the church in Colossae. And many believe that what we have in this epistle is the uh, Holy Spirit's pre-science uh, uh, of uh, knowledge beforehand. That this heresy, later known as uh, Gnosticism, was going to rise up. Gnosticism was a pseudo-religion, meaning the word pseudo, you know, in English it just means false. It was a religion based on, you know, a secret knowledge. That's what the word gnosis in Greek is knowledge. That's how you say knowledge in the Greek language. Uh, so the Gnostics, they claimed to have secret knowledge. And later on, as this, and it was actually around before Christianity uh, in kind of infant form. It was a false religion. But then it adopted Christian terminology. As the gospel spread, Satan began to, like, hey, you know what, let's borrow some Christian terms. And so the Gnostics presented themselves as the true Christians because they had the deeper knowledge. They had ceremonies and supposedly, it was a lot like the Masonic rituals you hear about. Um, Masonism is not much more than just Gnosticism in different garb. But the idea that through our secret ceremonies and through learning secret words and all these things, you can climb up the ladder of being and eventually you can attain the same thing the devil promised Adam and Eve. You can be like God. And so people buy into that. And the idea is that, well, they had their philosophy, their secret knowledge. You know, the word philosophy, again, a Greek word. Um, Sophia means not, uh, wisdom, actually. And phileo in Greek uh, means to love. So supposedly a philosopher is one who loves wisdom. Well, there's true philosophy, and that's the study of God's word. There's false philosophy, and that's anything that leads away from Christ. And you'll see in this chapter, we already read it, uh, there, there are certain philosophies that lead people away from Jesus. They claim that they have special knowledge in their, their system of looking at the world, their system of understanding the way things are. That's the true knowledge. And through their ceremonies and ritual, and kind of if you join their club, uh, you might say, or get inducted into their rites, you can attain to this knowledge also. And so Paul warns them about this. There's elsewhere in Scripture, in Revelation, Jesus warned about uh, those who had not, in the church, thankfully, those who had not known the depths of Satan, as he says. Uh, so here Paul's writing to them, and he tells them, he wants them to have good things, to enjoy their salvation. So he says, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. Now, he doesn't mean that he had gone to Laodicea and fought with lions. Okay? What he means is what he's contending for while he's a prisoner, that is for the truth of the gospel, 
was going to benefit the people in Colossae. He knew that, and he knew that he was the point man in this battle, that they were coming after him because he wouldn't be quiet. He kept talking about Jesus. He wanted people to know the Lord, and he called people to faith and repentance. Those in whom the Holy Spirit worked and brought them to saving faith, he gathered them into local congregations. Well, the wicked one couldn't stand that, and so the devil used his own uh, servants to stir up trouble for Paul. So Paul had a lot of difficulty, conflict. The Greek word there that's translated conflict is actually the exact word, the root of, of that is the word, we get the word agony. Uh, the, Paul said, I have a great agony for you. Agona is the, the Greek word. Uh, so he said, for, for, uh, for you and for those in Laodicea. Laodicea is mentioned elsewhere in scripture. Uh, and that was a close city. It's mentioned in the book of Revelation. If you remember, they were eventually a generation later, they were neither hot nor cold. Uh, but at this time, Paul's contending. He says, you know, what I'm doing, I'm standing up for the truth that you guys hold to. So what happens to me has a reference to you also. And he says, for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So Paul was, he was willing to contend in prayer and in testimony for God's people, wherever they were, even those that had never met him. And here's what he why he was doing it. He gives us the reason in verse 2. He said that their hearts may be encouraged. Now that word encouraged comes from the same word as translated comfort, that they could be comforted. You know, this world's full of, full of woe for to, uh, as this veil of tears, this valley of tears that we walk through. Uh, and so the comfort of the gospel is so needed and necessary. So Paul says that their hearts may be encouraged. Um, the uh, section of scripture that was read earlier where Paul is beseeching the, the church uh, in Philippi in chapter 4. But if you go back to 2, he says, if there is there, if, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, he says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. See, be in agreement. Don't need to be fussing over things. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. It's not about you. You know, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done. We don't say, and Lord, let my will be done. That's not what we're saying, okay? So let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So he goes on about that. But the idea of the comfort of love and the consolation in Christ, that's a real thing, and Christians need that. And that has, that's what's supposed to happen in the fellowship of a local church. Because this is Paul is not writing in general to Christians scattered abroad that have nothing to do with other Christians. He's writing to the congregation, to the church that's in Colossae, the saints and faithful brethren. So it's important. This having your hearts knit together and being encouraged, you know, note that. That, he's talking about the fellowship of the church, being together with God's people in your attitude, your heart, and your sympathies, and your, your good works. You know, uh, We begin at the house of God. We don't stop there, but we're to look out for our brothers and sisters, and we begin with our prayers. So he says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together, and that's a wonderful word. It means joined together. You know, When you knit something, uh, it's intertwined, and he's saying that's the way your hearts should be toward one another. And note that being knit together and uh, because of that, by doing that, being encouraged, that is built up in your hearts, and being knit together in love, 
and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding. Within the context of that, the reason why this is such an important duty for us and something to really pray about, within the context of that, we grow in the knowledge of God's love. Note, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding. So the Gnostics might promise some kind of esoteric knowledge through their secret rituals and weird vows and oaths and secret words to say, and they had a bunch of weird stuff going on. Paul said, you know, if you guys love each other and pray for each other and carry each other in your hearts, you're going to grow into the full assurance of understanding. You're going to know the gospel better by your fellowship in Christ. To the knowledge of the mystery of God. So that word knowledge there, there's that old word. Remember the, 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 the word, uh, general word for knowledge. You remember this is today's Greek lesson. So uh, is the verb I know is gnosko or gnosis. Okay. Well, this is, the, this is the bumped up word, okay? When they add the preposition epi, it, it intensifies it. So this is epigenosis, is how you say that in Greek. Uh, the verb is epigenosko. So gnosko means I know. Remember we talked about that. Go over it again in case you forgot. If you know there's cake in the refrigerator, you can say gnosko and then figure out how to say cake in the refrigerator, okay? Um, which I don't have a dictionary with me right now. I might be pressed on that one. But if you have tasted the cake and you know it, then you would say epigenosco, or I have epigenosis about that cake. In other words, I've tasted the cake. It's good, okay? Um, and so this is, what the, this is the word he's using. He's using a word that means personal understanding. Paul desires for them not to just know about God, and a lot of people have that, but to have a personal experiential the word experience, based on the word experience, not experimental. Although in the old days, they kind of used those words almost interchangeably. So he's not saying experiment, he's saying experiential. That is, you experience. So he wants them to have a, a personal experiential knowledge of the Father and of Christ. Not just of who he is, but to know him personally. To experience knowing God, trusting his promises, recognizing his sovereign providence daily, seeking uh, to know his will, speaking to him in prayer and praise while hearing his voice speak to us in the Holy Scriptures. By the way, if you think God's talking to you in your head, you need to get back in the Bible better. Okay? If the Holy Spirit, by the way, the Holy Spirit does quicken Scripture to the hearts of God's people. So if you go, well, the Lord spoke to me, and that's why I'm here today. Well, okay, I'm not going to argue with you about that, because the Bible says not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So, yeah, the Lord probably did speak to you. But if someone says, I heard a voice, eh, show me chapter and verse, okay? You've got to be really careful. There's so many false prophets, and we have people running around today saying that, well, God speaks to me directly apart from Scripture. And I would say, no, that's not what is going on. That's just your own heart deceiving you. Um, so we, we, God speaks to us through Scripture, and we speak to Him in prayer. And so there's that relationship that's built up. That's why you want to hide God's Word in your heart. Okay? So the Holy Spirit can quicken that Word to you. You know, I remember telling some guys one time, they were talking about, well, the Lord told me to do this, the Lord told me to do that. And that was the, basically their, their whole Christian walk was whatever uh, impulse they had, they acted on it. So I told and I, I might have shared this before, but I said, you know what I'm, uh, by the way, there's a bunch of athletes at the University of the Pacific down in Stockton. This is years ago. But I said, you know what I do? I do if I'm driving down the road and I think the Lord's telling me to turn left? 
They go, what? I said, I just keep going where I was heading to begin with. I said, okay. And they said, why would you do that? I said, because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Now, if I know that Brother Jones lives down that street and he's not been doing well and I need to go see him, I will turn and go down there. And if the Lord reminds me of that when I'm in that area, I'll do that. But I said, I don't just follow whatever impulse comes into my head and say, well, that's God leading me, okay? Otherwise, I'd never get to where I'm supposed to be going, probably. And I realized I had just pulled the carpet out from underneath their, the whole basis of their walk, and I felt really bad about it, but I told them, we go by Scripture. Whatever the fruit of that bore later, I don't know, but I know in my own self it kind of made me think about things. and say, yeah, that, that is true, you know. We can't follow the promptings of our own heart unless we can say, okay, what does Scripture say? Our Lord was once put on the pinnacle of, the, of a temple, the temple, and told to jump off of it, okay? He knew better. Jesus said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And I've said this before. If you read the Mishnah, which is the book all about the temple uh, that was written after its destruction so they'd know what to do if it ever got rebuilt, it's a very interesting book written in Hebrew. I've mentioned before, you know why Jesus didn't jump off the pinnacle of the temple? Because there were stairs going down from the pinnacle of the temple. You don't have to jump. You can take the stairs. You don't put your life in danger, okay, because you have a prompting. So, and Jesus knew where it was coming from, and the scripture is really clear. He rebuked the devil, and I love it when he said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. That was a twofold sword there. In other words, Jesus wasn't going to tempt the Father, and Satan was basically rebuked because he finally figured out who he was dealing with, God incarnate. So we follow God's word, and this is what Paul's talking about, having an experiential knowledge that comes from knowing God's word well enough so that you can understand providence and understand what you're supposed to be doing. And if you don't know where to start, then I would encourage you to get the Ten Commandments into your heart and mind, read the Sermon on the Mount for a beginning, and then keep reading the Bible, both Testaments, and really study and learn. You know, the best concordance you can ever get is your own brain. Okay, hide the word in your heart or mind, probably is a more delicate word. Hide the word in your heart, and then when you need it, the Holy Spirit will bring it to your understanding. But if you never have scripture or you don't pay attention, when you're in a tight spot, as we would say, or you're in a difficult circumstance, or you're just not sure what to do, you're just going to be confounded. So get the word of God into your heart and mind. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, not just wisdom. In Proverbs, wisdom means having that knowledge and knowing what to do. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Okay, that's in Proverbs. So we want to have that. Paul's desiring for them to have this experiential knowledge. Knowing his promises, recognizing his sovereign providence, speaking to him in prayer, walking with him day and night, waking or sleeping actually, okay, day by day, trusting daily in his mercies and grace, with full confidence in the person and finished work of Christ as their Savior and risen Lord. That's what Paul wanted them to have. That's what he's saying. That you would attain to the full, to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, the knowledge, the epigenosis, the experiential knowledge of the mystery of God, and he's already talked about that, that the gospel would come among the Gentiles. But then note this, the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. Some of, the, some of the modern versions obscure that, but the Greek and the TR, it's very clear. Mystery of God, of the Father, and of Christ. So who's he calling Jesus? He's saying Jesus is God. To know him is to know the Father. And then when he mentions Jesus, 
He says in verse 3, in whom, and that's singular, he's referring to Christ there, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he's telling them, you don't have to run off to these fake philosophers and these Gnostic quacks. Study God's word. Learn who Jesus is. Find out about him. He is the one. In him, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are to be found. So, and that's what he warns them about. And he tells them, now, this I say, he says, lest anyone should deceive you uh, with persuasive words. You see, these guys are really fast talkers, smooth talkers, and they can get you into these cults pretty easy, okay? It's amazing how many highly educated, intelligent people are in some of the dumbest religions you'd ever want to think up, okay? And that's because the capacity of the human mind to have a vast body of pretty useful knowledge and a whole bunch of religious foolishness in the same head abounds in this world. And the way you get that garbage out of your mind is by, well, how shall a young man cleanse his way? What does it say in Psalm 119? There's a good verse to memorize. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to thy word. Okay, that's how you know. So when you're trying to figure out, well, is this thing true? What these guys are claiming? How do I know that's true? Go to the Bible. Sola Scriptura. Jesus said, Father, in John 17, 17, Father, you know this, sanctify them by thy truth. Sanctified means to be separated from the world and separated unto God. Okay, that's what true holiness is, having your heart filled with love and gentleness and kindness. Sanctify them by thy word, or by thy truth, rather. Then he said, thy word is truth. Christ prayed that we would be sanctified by the truth, by God's word. And if you read, well, what does that mean? Is it an esoteric voice you hear? No, it's the written scriptures. It's the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Okay, so say, oh, see, when God speaks, yes, God has spoken. Holy men of God spoke, uh, wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. God has spoken. He's inscripturated his word, so we have it. Some say, well, that's a static revelation. I mean, it doesn't change. That's absolutely true. Okay, just a lot of, you know, you wouldn't want to build a house with a rubber ruler, okay, because it would not be very livable. God's word doesn't change. He's preserved it. Why? Because he wants us to have, Jesus said, one jot or one tittle that has to do with the actual spelling of words and the forms of letters, and those refer to the Hebrew language referring to the Old Testament. One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And then he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. By the way, I'm not trying to get on a hobby horse here. One of the reasons why I despise many modern translations is not because there's not good men that have worked on them, but the Greek and Hebrew texts that they use often are coming from unbelievers because they're, they have the academic degrees. And the problem with that is um, God promised to preserve his word. The doctrine of preservation of Scripture is lost in the evangelical churches. When you hear people say, well, the Scriptures are inerrant and inspired in the original autographs, you know, what the first prophets and uh, apostles wrote, but the copies aren't. It's like, beloved, it wasn't the paper and ink that was inspired. It was the words. God did that because words can be transmitted, okay? If you have a 15th century manuscript that is copied correctly, from a fourth one that was copied from the original. In the 15th century, what you have there is the authoritative, inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. That's why God had it written down, so it could be transmitted. 
And if it's translated, you have to look back at the original, which is what we try to do in sermons. But the translation is valid also. It is the word of God if it's translated faithfully. Okay? It's like one person pointed out. If you have a letter from a king, but your ambassador, his ambassador, translated it into your language because the king wrote it in a different language, that letter in your language, though it be a translation, it is still a letter from the king, and it's still authoritative. You might want to check and say, well, is that what they said in the original? Fine. If you go, yeah, it is. Okay, well, then that's just as authoritative. God has promised to preserve his word, and he did. That's such an important thing. Okay, uh, the fellow that's now in charge of producing the, the, the critical Greek text, you might have heard of him, his name is Bart Ehrman. His latest book came out, and I think it's entitled Jesus, the, the uh, True Son of Joseph. Absolutely denies the resurrection, denies the virgin birth. This is the guy in charge of picking out which Greek words go into the modern editions of the Greek New Testament. That's on the critical text. Someone says, well, what's authentic? Well, how about what's been used in the church pretty much since the beginning, okay? That's the old Textus Receptus, the Byzantine majority text, some call it. Uh, that's what's translated in the New King James. That's why you have different readings. If you have a modern version, you look it up where it says um, in verse 2, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. It doesn't say that in a lot of the modern versions. They drop out the word Father. Uh, because, well, a couple of manuscripts that were old in Egypt didn't have it. Yeah, every place else did, though, guys, thousands of them. So it's a shell game that they're playing, and so many evangelicals have bought into that. Beloved, God gave his word. It is infallible, and it is inspired, and it is preserved. God promised to preserve his word, and he did. We're not bereft of God's word, right down to the integrity of the writing. Textual criticism is valid, just like archaeology is valid. You know, if you're a Christian, you can be an archaeologist. But if somebody comes to you and says, hey, look, we're on an archaeological expedition. We're going to go look for the body of Jesus. You'd say, that's a fool's errand. Christ has risen from the dead. You're not going to find his body. Okay, when someone says, well, we're going, to, we're going to put the New Testament back together because it's been thoroughly corrupted through the ages, and now we have the intellectual prowess that we can decide what the apostles probably intended. And in the modern critical editions, there's a few places where they have created readings because they didn't like what was in any of the manuscripts. So these guys have actually changed a couple of things. They're small things, but they've changed a few things uh, because they're like, well, this has to be, it couldn't be what we have in the manuscripts. So they're, they're like loose cannons, very dangerous. This is what I think Paul was warning about at one point when men exalt their own intellects above the written word of God. Paul, remember when he said, um, he's in Galatians, he's talking about the promise uh, to Abraham, uh, hew into your seed. Paul says, he, say, he, say, he saith not unto thy seeds, which are many, but to thy seed, which is one. Paul's writing that in the first century, about 1,500 years after Moses wrote. And he says, there's a singular there, thy seed, not seeds, plural. In Hebrew, the difference between thy seed and thy seeds, it's one letter, yod. When Jesus said one jot, yod. One yod or one tittle, that's a shape of a letter. Like today would be like the difference between an O and a Q in English. It's a little mark that distinguishes a Hebrew letter. Shall not pass from the law. Paul, 1,500 years after the writings of Moses, he knew what the common text was, and he said, he doesn't say to your seeds, which would be zakreka, but to thy zakarka, okay, uh, which is one, singular. Paul knew the text had been preserved, 
And we start, well, we just don't know. We just, we just don't know. And then sadly, this is just such an infection in evangelical Christianity. We need to stand on the promise of God that God has preserved his word and kept it pure by his singular care. The Westminster Confession says chapter 1, section 8, by his singular care and providence through all ages. It's not miraculous, not necessarily numerical, but providentially God has made sure that we had his written word. And we talk about manuscripts, but providential preservation did not end with the invention of printing. And that's why all through the Reformation, they, began, they printed what was in the manuscripts, and that's why we have what's called the Textus Receptus. So that's important, because we're trying to fight Gnosticism. You don't want a Bible that's been put together by Gnostics, okay, modern-day versions of them. So Paul writes he wants them to know God personally. This is why you've got to have a faithful copy of God's Word and a good translation. The other ones, all the modern ones, are done by evangelicals. You can use them as commentaries. They have value. We're not going to despise somebody's work. But we have to be somewhat critical of the critical text and say they've erred very grievously by denying providential preservation. Bruce Metzger, a well-known modern textual critic, he passed away. I trust he's with the Lord. Uh, but he wrote a book called The New Testament. It's Transmission, Corruption, and Restoration. You know, it was transmitted and then got corrupted because, and Bart Ehrman will tell you, he said, well, the church wrote all this stuff about Jesus being God and rising from the dead and the virgin birth. That was their kind of spoken to it. They wrote that back into the Bible. So we need to get that out of the New Testament, okay? That's actually what they teach. Uh, so Bart Ehrman, like, by the way, he was taught by Bruce Metzger at Princeton. He believes that the scriptures have been corrupted, not by the heretics, but by Orthodox believers. And so what's he going to produce? If he's canning your Greek Testament that he thinks is authentic, how do you think it's going to read? I guarantee you, go looking up verses about the deity of Christ, they're going to be obscured or missing. Okay. So anyway, it's important for us to know God has preserved his word. There are variants in manuscripts. It's really easy to figure out. Jesus said in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. If you want to do textual criticism, look and see what's been preserved, what's been printed, what's been used, and where has God's blessing been found? And what has the church received? And by the church, I mean Bible believers. With, and this doctrine of preservation is absolutely vital. Paul wants to counter the false claims of these heretics. So he says, I say this lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. They have an appearance of intellectual prowess with them. They seem like they're really smart. I had a friend that went to seminary with the Reformed Episcopal Seminary, and he ended up going to Princeton, and he apostatized. He turned his back on orthodoxy, you know, I mean, evangelical Reformed teaching. And I said to him, why did you do that? And he said, oh, he said, I just, I couldn't answer all of their arguments. He said their intellect and their knowledge was just so far beyond anything I had, I had to just go ahead and start agreeing with them. And his life was a disaster. Last time I heard he was basically living homeless, his marriage had broken up, and he just, they made shipwreck of his faith and destroyed his life. But if you see somebody, you think, wow, their answers, their, their stuff, it just can't be answered. That's why some people like Bart Ehrman. They go, he just knows so much. No, he's an ignoramus, okay, and he's misinterpreting the data off the scale. And there's plenty of guys that love the Lord, read the Bible, believe it's true, that have refuted this guy. It's just their stuff doesn't get printed in like the Harvard Review and things like that, okay? So if you ever come across just irrefutable, uh, you know, arguments that overthrow the Christian faith, talk to people that are Christians, okay? 
you come talk to me. I might not be able to give you the answer right then, but I'll find it for you. Their stuff can always be answered. One of my professors, Dr. Fisher, he said something very interesting. He said, if you actually look at what the liberals are saying when they're talking about the Bible, he said the one thing that becomes so abundantly clear is they don't know the Bible very well. And when they take, well, and because most of the time it's what they were taught that, you know, they didn't do the research themselves. Somebody told them, oh, well, you know, the Bible's only in Aaron in the original autographs. So, you know, we don't have his word today. And the liberals come back and say, so you're defending inerrancy and saying we don't really have it. So what are you guys talking about? Well, we kind of almost have it. And they just laugh and say, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Uh, but Dr. Fisher pointed out, if you really look at the arguments of the liberals and the, those that deny the Bible, you'll find out real quick, they don't really know the Bible very well. And that's been my experience. So Paul's writing to the uh, Colossians because he wants them to enjoy their salvation. And he tells them, for though I am absent in the flesh, verse 5, uh, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith. Now this can be understood that Paul, as an apostle, did have special knowledge at times. He talks about a gift of knowledge. He knew what was going on. You know, today we have phones and internet and all that. Paul had the Holy Spirit. So when he prayed for the Colossians, he trusted that the Lord was going to lead him in his prayers. But he also had a good attitude toward them. He said, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Also, people came from Colossae and informed him. Epaphras was one of those. So Paul had information. <coughs> But he also had a good opinion of them. He said, I know in my heart there's good order and steadfastness. That's, actually, that's where we get the, in Greek, that's where we get the word stereo because it's like, wow, this is really solid. It's like, you know, there. And that's what that word solidity means. And the solidity or the, the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul knew they're doing okay. With the reports I get, the things I hear about, I'm encouraged. He said, I see your good order. Things are being done correctly according to God's word. And the, your faith is standing strong. And then he tells them this, he says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So important. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So note this, he counters the false claims and he tells them, Remember how you received Jesus? It wasn't through secret rituals. It wasn't through esoteric knowledge uh, communicated through secret ceremonies. You receive Jesus Christ through the proclamation of the gospel by faith. And you came to him and you called upon him. You know how you're to conduct yourself? The same way. You're to receive God's word. You're to believe it. You're to trust in it. And then you're to live your lives in reliance upon the grace of God. Why? Well, because that's the way it, it is. You don't need a bunch of secret mumbo-jumbo. Jesus said, what you hear whispered in the ear, proclaim on the housetops. Okay? There's no secret doctrines in the Christian faith. I told a Mormon friend that one time, because he was talking about the temple, and I've done some reading, and I started talking to him about, well, here, I know what you guys do, and I was naming it all. And he stopped me. He said, we're not allowed to talk to non-Mormons about this. I said, well, then I quoted to him what Jesus said. What you hear whispered in the ear, proclaimed from the housetops. I said, buddy, i got to tell you, I'm not trying to be mean here, but if you're in a religion that has a bunch of secret doctrines that you can't talk about, you're not in the Christian church. You're not a Christian. Well, that's not a Christian religion. And he listened to me, but he didn't want to talk about it, and he was a friend, so I didn't press it any harder. But the truth is, everything in Christianity is open because it's from the Bible. 
Now, it should be open. If you open your Bibles, it's open, okay? So Paul wanted them to know, you receive Jesus by faith, not by weird ceremonies or magic rituals. That's how you're to walk. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You came to faith in him. You understood you were forgiven. Your hearts were filled as you understood the gospel with gratitude to God, that relief that comes from knowing your sins are forgiven based on God's promises by the work of the Holy Spirit, applying it to your heart. And then he warns them. He doesn't warn them there, but he says, rooted and built up in him. So rooted means just that. It comes from the word root. It means having been rooted. You got, you got your roots down. Remember the parable of the sower? You had the first three that didn't do much. Remember? Sown on stony ground. Actually, it was sown on the wayside. And the birds came and plucked it up. Those are those that hear the word, and immediately they, they lose it. Okay? Um, the other was sown on stony ground. And it, said it grew up quick and then withered. And he said later that those who experience trouble right after they profess faith, they fall away because they have no root in themselves. It never really went into their heart of hearts. They had an intellectual understanding at a certain point, but it never really changed them. They hadn't been born again. The third one is always the one that professed Christians and those in the church need to really take heed to. So the third one were those sown among thorns. And he said, and the seed sprung up. So did the thorns, and the thorns choked the word, and they brought forth no fruit, or to perfection anyway. It didn't bring forth any fruit. And for us, Jesus said, you know, those, that's those who hear the word, but uh, the cares of the world and the lust of other things, you know, et cetera, grow up and choke the word. So that's why we have to be gardeners, because we do have weeds. The enemy does sow weeds, and we started off with corrupt hearts anyway. We're not yet fully redeemed. Your, your soul's been saved. Your spirit's been regenerated. Your body is not yet regenerated. That happens at the resurrection. And you'll never sin again when that takes place. But right now, we still have the motions of sin. And when we say our flesh, it's not just our physical bodies. That affects our soul, our attitudes. You know, you get gripey. It's, some people do. Uh, no, I do too. Um, but, you know, that affects us. So we have to go and pull those weeds up by confessing our sins, saying, Lord, get this garbage out of my life. I'm ashamed of myself before you. And so we need to remember that. And then the fourth one, though, those are the ones where the word was sown. It took root and it bore fruit, some uh, 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. Not everyone was, you know, as productive as the other, but they all were alive and producing fruit because their roots were down in the ground. That means rooted in Christ. That's what Paul's saying here. He says, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, that is, you put him first when you got saved, you didn't offer, well, Lord, I'll help you save me. You said, Lord, I can't do this. You've got to save me. Have mercy. As you received him as Lord, what are you to do? So walk in him. It's not a self-help program. You've got to go to Jesus. Rooted and built up. I like that. The roots go down, being built up. Okay? That's the way trees grow. The roots go down, the branches go up. That's what he's saying. And he is talking here in the plural. He's talking to a church. We generally have to apply this to individuals, but he's talking to them corporately, saying this is what you as a church need to be doing as a group of people, a called-out assembly. Uh, you all, as you receive Jesus, and that's plural in all these, these uh, verses. We don't see that in modern English. In old English, thou is singular, you is plural, but we can't do that in modern English. But he said, y'all, we would say, in some parts of the country, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you have been taught. Note that. You don't need some new doctrines to come along. 
Like, well, you know, the apostles didn't have it all, but now we do. The traditions of the church are such that we know that blah, 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 you know. And people do that. It's like, no, as you've been taught, what did the apostles teach? That's one thing I love about, you know, the Council of Nicaea, where we get the confession, which we'll begin using next week, by the way. When they were talking about the deity of Christ, you know, we actually have notes and, and you know, men that kept records of what was going on there. They weren't talking about, well, what do we want to claim here? What do we want to say? Their discussions were based on what were our fathers taught by those who taught them from those who taught them who were taught by the apostles. In other words, what does the scripture say and what is the truth that we can trace back to the apostles based on scripture? They weren't interested in creating a new religion. They wanted to know what has God delivered to us, what's been preserved and preached in the church. And that was at an early stage in around 325, 324. So there wasn't a lot of the medieval corruptions that had come in yet. But they went back and said, what have we been taught? And this is what Paul's telling them. As you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Stay in the word, stay in the truth. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, that is, they claim to love wisdom, through uh, an empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You want to know God? Look to Jesus. And then he tells them, and you are complete in him. That's a, Greek, that's a perfect tense, remember? Perfect tense is an, an action that's completed in past time that has present results. Paul's not saying maybe, because the Gnostics always said, if you go through all their rituals, you might eventually attain to deity. Paul says, you already have not attained to deity. That's not the goal of the Christian life. He said, everything God wants to do for you, you've already been given that. It's already been done. Christ is in heaven as your representative. Legally, you're already seated in heaven. Right now, you're experiencing the outworking and the application of Christ's redemption in your life. But how assurance, or how much assurance can you have? The one who legally represents you is already in heaven. Legally, you're in heaven. Ephesians chapter 2. You've been co-raised, co-quickened, co-raised, co-seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Legally, you're already there. You're experiencing the outworking now. That's what Paul's saying. In him dwells all the fullness of the body, of the Godhead rather, bodily. And you are, that is, you, have, you are already having been completed in him who is the head of all principality and power. That's a short way of saying nothing's going to separate you from the love of God or thwart God's plan to save you if you're truly trusting in Jesus. May God be pleased to apply his word to our hearts. If you want to memorize something, memorize Colossians 2, 1 through 10. It's a good place to start. Okay, The Lord will help you on that. But get God's word in your heart and mind. That's what Paul's telling them. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the glories of the gospel. We thank you for the wonders of your Son. We thank you, Lord, that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And Lord, we thank you that we can know you through your Son. As you said, Lord Jesus, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Lord, help us to truly know you with that epignosis, that, that experiential, personal knowledge. Uh, we want to know about you. But, Lord, we really want to know you and know your love. So comfort our hearts and be with us and help us to share with others that comfort, Lord, and help them and encourage our brothers and sisters when they struggle. Forgive us our sins now and keep us in fellowship with you and with each other. For we ask this in Jesus Christ's name.